Shabbat Shalom, everyone. You may be seated. One dark day and evening in September of 1972, a group of terrorists organized from the group called Black September snuck into the Olympic Village in Munich, Germany during the middle of the Olympic Games, broke into the dormitory that was housing the Israeli athletes, their entourage, and the coaches, and killed one athlete and took the balance of them hostage for over 24 hours. This group, Black September, demanded that what they called the Israeli war machine would release 234 prisoners from Israeli prison systems for the release of these soldiers. The Germans tried desperately to negotiate with the hostage takers. They tried to offer them all different types of resources so that these games, which were known as the peaceful games, the first games to be in Germany since the time of Jesse Owen and Adolf Hitler were being marred. So the IOC and the leaders of Germany would do anything to make sure that this terrorism would go away. They offered endless amounts of money to Palestinian causes or the group Black September, but they refused. The only thing Black September would negotiate for was the release of all 234 of these prisoners that were all listed by the Israeli authorities in Israel. After negotiations began to break down, the Germans decided that they would send a commando team in to work their way through the ventilation system of the dormitory and take out the terrorists. But there were two problems. One, the team that they had sent in to do so had no formal training, and they were afraid of losing their own lives and lives of those who were being held hostage. And secondly, as this group was forming, it was all being broadcast live on television. So the terrorists were seeing this exact act happen in the interim, and they were preparing themselves for what was going to be an armed and stormed entry. And that thwarted the entry, and they didn't come in. This entire time, as soon as word broke and got news to Israel, the Israelis at the time wanted to send in a commando unit. Golda Meir, who was the prime minister of the time, insisted that they send in one of their elite forces to come and relieve the Germans and to take charge of the situation. But both the German government and the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, refused to allow the Israelis to have any jurisdiction whatsoever. In fact, the Israelis actually took off in flight, but never landed in Germany because they weren't allowed 
to do anything once they were to land, and their flight was turned back. All of us who know any bit of history know that when the hostages were then taken, put on a bus, and brought to Ravensbrück Airport in Munich, that the situation entirely flopped. What was supposed to happen is there was a jetliner, and that jetliner was going to have the Israelis and the hostage takers be flown to whatever location they had chosen, and there would be a trade. But the airplane was actually staffed with its steward, purser, and captain and co-captain with German commandos. But they all realized that they had no plan whatsoever for taking over the hostages. And the commandos decided to abort the mission before the bus even arrived at the airport. So when they boarded the plane, the hostage takers, they saw no one there to even man the plane. No one there to pilot it. And then a shootout ensued. And as we can still hear in our mind's ear, the words of Jim McKay from ABC News, our worst fears have been realized. They're all gone. Three of the hostage takers and all of the hostages were killed that night in Munich. It was a horrible day for the state of Israel, a day that still haunts us and our existence every time within the state of Israel and even when we leave it. And there isn't an Olympics that go by that we don't pause and think of 1972 in Munich. Less than four years later, in 1976, on a July day, an Air France flight was hijacked, and it was flown, of all places, to Entebbe, Uganda. And all I have to do is say those words, Entebbe, and it's synonymous with the notion of heroism. It's synonymous with the notion of bravery. And we know, led by Yoni Netanyahu and others, that planes flew in under the radar, literally, landed in a field. The Israelis guised themselves as if they were Idi Amin arriving at the terminal open fire and captured so many of those who were taken hostage, who almost all were Jewish or Israeli in some way or another. Even though many, including the pilots and the pursers, were offered the opportunity to leave the flight, they stayed with them. And all were captured back and the hostage takers were all eliminated. I share these two historical lessons that I imagine most of you know well to juxtapose two important thoughts that I think matter. In 1972, in Munich, the Israelis were not allowed to have a role in what could have been the redemption of those soldiers, those athletes, the commando team was denied the opportunity to come to Germany and to execute whatever extraction they could to save those athletes. But in 1976, we learned our fate much better. And we knew from history how to be the architects of our fate better. And then Entebbe happened. And we were heroic. 
and we didn't have to mourn, we have reason to celebrate. I share those two with you because of a sentence that I've been thinking about this past week. Jews are most often best served when we are the architects of our own fate. I'm going to say that again. Jews are most often best served when we are the architects of our own fate. That's hard to say. It's hard for me to utter those words because sometimes I think the efforts of others do matter. I don't think the Germans or the IOC were trying to kill Israelis on that day. I don't think they had any intentionality whatsoever to bring harm to the Israeli government and the Israeli people. They were willing to give up all types of things in a form of negotiation, but the leaders of Black September weren't budging. But I do think that the role and the, excuse the expression, skin in the game is so much more significant when we are determining our own fate. What causes me to share the juxtaposition of these two hostage crises with Israelis from 1972 to 1976 has to do with a sentence that was uttered to this week by our Secretary of State, John Kerry. John Kerry has been a stalwart for his entire career in the Senate on behalf of the State of Israel. He has a perfect voting record for Israel. He's been a champion and sensitive to Israeli causes from the time that he has entered public life. That is unquestionable. Furthermore, it's been said by Mahmoud Abbas and by Benjamin Netanyahu that John Kerry has an indomitable spirit. He has been to the region more than any other Secretary of State in that time span with one purpose and one purpose only, to try and make peace. So in no way do I stand here today wagging a finger at our Secretary of State or his efforts or where I think his sincerity lies. Because I do believe, although I don't know him, I've met him two times in my life, I, I do believe that his interests were pure interests and good interests and not self-serving interests. But he was being the architect of the fate of the Jewish people as opposed to the Jewish people being their architect of their own fate. And when he said this week that he believes that the peace talks that he has worked so hard on over the last year have failed, and his reason for failure was because the Israelis chose not to release 400 prisoners in their prison system. And this was the reason he gave for the failure of the peace talks. Now for you and for me, we might hear the release of prisoners and maybe even John Kerry in Washington and maybe even people in Saudi Arabia or the Emirates or wherever else it might be, they'd say, release of prisoners, what's the big deal? Release of prisoners. It doesn't touch me. But we have someone in the synagogue who happens to be here today who it does touch. Because when Gilad Shalit was held captive, we said a prayer for him every single Shabbos. Whenever we took a trip to Israel, we stopped at his tent that was held vigil outside the prime minister's house and prayed for his release. And when we did release him for exchange of a thousand prisoners, we released people who had blood on their hands, one of which who was the mastermind and a driver responsible for bringing a bomb to a hotel in Netanya, the Park Hotel, 
that killed too many people, including the mother of one of our congregants who sits with us on this Shabbat. So for him, that level of releasing prisoners is significant. It means something. And when we're talking about offering a settlement freeze, and just all of you understand what settlement freeze means, it means no building in the West Bank or Jerusalem at all. That means if SodaStream stock soars through the roof and they decide they need to build a bigger dining hall because they have more staff there, they can't by law. It's a freeze for eight months or 12 months or 16 months. And if you have nine kids and your wife gives birth to twins and you want to build a little annex, you can't. It's a building freeze. And while that sounds silly, this example I'm giving, it is exactly that. You can't even lay down new patio pavers in a building freeze and blocks like Efrat and Ariel and Ma'ala Domim, which all agree and any future peace agreement will be part of what is known as Israel. So this concession would have to be made and the concession of giving up 400 prisoners would be made and the Palestinians would come to the table and say to us, what you get in return for that is our continued conversation will continue to come to the table without one concession, without one compromise, without one agreement. Not coming forward and saying, we'll come to the table with an agreement on Jerusalem. We'll come to the table with an agreement on security. We'll come to the table with an agreement on borders. We'll come to the table with an agreement on the right of return. But we have to give up people with blood on their hands. And we have to tell people in parts of Israel, today Israel proper, that will always be part of Israel proper, that they can't build a patio or an extra dining hall or change a wall in their apartment for 8 to 12 months while you give us the great courtesy of continuing in conversation and negotiations. Now that's hard for me to say that because I wanted to believe in this process as I have in the past because I do believe the status quo is not acceptable. We're losing a war on demographics. We're losing a war on time. But the times that we decide painfully but unilaterally our own fate and we are those architects, our best interests are served. During the second intifada, when buses and cafes were bombed daily, Ariel Sharon, then prime minister, decided unilaterally to build a wall throughout parts of Israel that would separate Arab villages from Israeli Jewish villages. Now this wall went up with tremendous protests from the United Nations, from left-wing groups throughout Israel, and outside of Israel as well. But Sharon and the Knesset didn't cave whatsoever, and they built the wall. And the wall in some places is a wire fence, in other places is 25 feet of concrete. But what that wall did is it brought crime down 98%. And when I say crime, I'm not only talking about terrorist bombings, I'm also talking about carjackings, theft, rape, and so on. 98%. So yes, indeed, we were subject to a lot of scrutiny for building that wall. 
And there was indeed a separation made in that wall. But the value in that wall was the safety of our brothers and sisters every day who can get on and off buses and drink cappuccinos in cafes and let their shoulders down a little bit when taking part in those experiences. Another example of us being the architect of our own fate. I share this with you because I am not a politician and I not really a pundit, but at this stage of the game, after these many years of conflict and of fighting and a demand to release 400 prisoners and a demand for a settlement freeze of 8 to 12 months only to have the benefit of them coming to the table makes me realize that the only future peace has is if indeed we, the Jewish people, are the architects of it and it's not brokered by another. In two days... We're going to gather around our Sadarim, and we are going to celebrate the holiday of Passover, which is a holiday that commemorates freedom, what it is to be free. That we were slaves in Egypt that helped build pyramids, and then we were released, and we fled, and we built a startup nation. That's the difference. But when we were released, when we broke away from Paro, the Greeks didn't intercede and negotiate on the Israelites' behalf. The Romans didn't come down and say, in order for the Jews to go, we will leave 500 Jews. 500 of B'nai Israel will stay, and the rest of you can go, and that will be our treaty. We stood unified, and we left. And as soon as the Paro had a change of heart and followed us in suit, we ran faster, and we created our own destiny. And for anyone who is small-minded enough or simple enough to think that the journey that B'nai Israel took from that moment, of even the exodus of that moment all the way through to today, is one that didn't have strife or challenge or different opinions or different avenues that people wanted to take or infighting, they'd be wrong dead wrong. All of our moments in Judaism, from the time of Yitzhak Mitzrayim to the Mishnah to the Talmud to today, are always filled with different opinions and conflict. And no one is sure what the future has to bring, but all of us know that we want a better and brighter future. But what pains me to say on this Shabbat HaGadol is that perhaps our best future comes when we indeed are the architects of it as opposed to letting others be the architects. When we unilaterally withdrew from Gaza, there has been tremendous backlash and over 10,000 rockets that have come over the border since. And that indeed has been unethical and not right. But we created that. We did that as a test. It was a true test, a documented test, done by Sharon and the Knesset at the time to say, if we can give us part of land and have neighbors in peace, then it will tell us we have more opportunities ahead of us with other areas of Israel. But if we give this part of land and we can't have peace, then we have to determine our own fate. Our fate can't live in the hands of others. And sadly, 
They chose their fate too. And they have been the architects of their future as well. Shabbat HaGadol, this Shabbat before Passover, is a time for pause, a time for reflecting, a time where we should all think about ways and we want to renew our lives and our souls in this moment of rebirth and spring and what is the halfway point between now and Rosh Hashanah. We're halfway done from the new year and we're halfway towards the new year. But it's a reminder for all of us also that in our personal lives, our nuclear lives, the global life, and in the world of the Jewish people as well, that perhaps it's time for us to be the architects of our own fate and to stop leaving fate to others. Perhaps some things happen by chance, but we can control some of those things as well. And in designing our own fate, we might have to make some very painful and difficult decisions. We might have to be put in a place that we didn't want to be put in the first place. But in being there, we hope for more moments like Antebi, where we bring Jews back home and we celebrate in unity because we can't afford any more Munichs. May we, in this spirit and in this time, May we design a future that's worthy of being in God's presence. Shabbat shalom, everyone.